welcome you to Understanding the Stress Response Training. Today's training is going to be about an hour and a half. I encourage your participation to the to the best you could. I know that this is a very different setting and really I want you to relax. And I mentioned my dog and that's a picture of her relaxing. And um, hopefully she's gonna be doing that as I provide this training. So I am gonna quickly hand it over to Jean and she's gonna lead us off, uh, start us off with a nice mindfulness exercise. Thank you so much, David. Um, this is just a brief meditation to sort of ground ourselves um, so that we're really ready for learning and relaxed. Um, so let's begin by closing our eyes and settling into a comfortable position. You can leave your eyes open if you'd like, but we're gonna begin breathing in through your nose to the count of four, and exhaling through your mouth to the count of eight. So let's start with a deep belly breath in through your nose. One, two, three, four, and slowly breathing out to the count of eight, pursing your lips as if you were gently blowing out a candle or blowing a bubble. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now let's do that one more time. Just focusing on our breath. Inhaling and exhaling. Now just breathe normally. As you do this, notice how the air feels as it comes into your body. You might notice the feelings of the breath as it flows into your nose. Pay attention to it. Is the air cool, warm, or perhaps neutral? Follow it and notice how it feels as it flows past your nostrils and down the back of your throat. Notice the sensations as the air fills your lungs from the bottom, gradually filling them to the top. Be aware of the air as you exhale. Empty your lungs starting at the top and gradually going down to the bottom. Keep noticing your breath as it flows in and out. Send your affection and caring to this wonderful breath, allowing it to continue to flow naturally as it brings life force into your being. Enjoy the feeling of nourishment and healing as you continue to breathe in and out. Do you notice any change in your breathing now that you have been paying attention to it? Is your breathing deep or shallow? 
slowly, rapidly, gently, or sharply. Observe your breathing without changing it. Become aware of the warmth that breathing brings to your being. Take an intentional breath in, breathing in a sense of calm. Exhale and allow anything that needs to go to flow effortlessly out. And let's take one more intentional breath in through your nose to the count of four. And exhaling through your mouth to the count of eight. Slowly bring your awareness back to the room when you are ready, expressing gratitude for taking the time to engage in this practice. And with that, we'll bring it back to David to start the training. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Jean. That was so helpful. If if anything, those meditations are great for us as the trainers, because I know I feel a little anxious before starting these. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, okay, so we have uh, some learning objectives today. Uh, we want to look at five different types of stress that we experience. We want to focus in on two specific components of the stress response system and how they interact and cause changes in the body. And then we're gonna look at a few specific changes that take place in the body to understand how those changes, they're adaptive in the, in the moment, but over time or chronically, they could be harmful to us. And then we just wanna reiterate the importance of self-regulation and self-care. Uh, if you've been on some of these trainings, you've probably noticed that we're definitely having a theme of, of focusing on stress and, uh, um, and kind of self-care and regulation. That's definitely an intentional, um, intentional uh, focus for us. I want to make sure that I put this disclaimer here. Um, I am not a doctor. I'm a social worker. I'm a licensed clinical social worker with the Public Mental Health Partnership, and that's a collaboration between the Department of Mental Health and UCLA. And, um, and part of my role is to provide trainings and develop content and hopefully help you all out who are doing such important work with a really important population in our city. So um, anyways, with that said, I'm a social worker and not a doctor, and we are going to talk about some of the physical health and processes that take place inside our body. Now, again, this is coming from uh, research, not necessarily a specific set of symptoms. So if you're experiencing anything you're concerned about, I am not the person to ask those questions to. You definitely want to talk to your primary care physician about that. So again, remember that this is really just based upon research and, um, and hopefully we'll be able to get some knowledge here, but not necessarily for any sort of diagnosis or anything like that. Okay, so with that, dis, uh, that disclosure, a disclaimer out of the way, now we could truly begin here. And so we're going to talk about stress. And 
what exactly is stress? I have to admit, and Jean was there with me, I was doing a training um, with one of the missions down in Skid Row a couple months ago. We were talking about trauma-informed care, and I was talking a lot about stress and what it does to our bodies and, and, and how we're able to respond to it. And somebody had asked me, um, well, what exactly is stress? And I have to admit, I was kind of caught off guard. Like I know when I'm feeling stressed, I know what it is kind of, I know what it feels like, but I, in the moment, I couldn't give a really confident answer. And I thought that I was really surprised. And Jean and I talked after the training and I'm like, oh my gosh, I was not ready for that question. And so um, it kind of prompted me to really take a deeper dive into this. And I find that it's so fascinating um, how this process works in our bodies. So that's kind of the intent today to look at just a couple of those ways. It's incredibly complex, which I'm gonna repeat over and over again, um, but we're gonna highlight just a few of those ways that stress, that our bodies res respond to stress and ways that we don't necessarily have control over. Um, so we'll also talk a little bit, not much, but we'll also talk about how we respond to the responses that our bodies are making as a result of that stress. So I hope that makes sense. Um, so here's a definition. Now this is coming from the Cleveland Clinic and uh, the Cleveland Clinic describes stress as a normal reaction the body has when changes occur. The body reacts to changes and demands with physical, mental, and emotional responses. So stress is really, it, it's, it's normal, of course. It's absolutely normal. It's something we all experience and we all need to experience it. And it's a set of these different reactions that our body goes through and our mind goes through and our emotions go through to deal with whatever that situation is. And we'll talk a little bit about the role of the emotion. We'll talk about the role of the cognition and also the role of some of those physical changes as we go through the day or through the afternoon. My apologies. So now let's look at what types of stress there are. So you can really divide this up into two categories. And I, I broke that out for you just to, uh, just to kind of take a look at, uh, at, at how that is. So stress, we have two subdivisions, I guess you can say. There's eustress and distress. Now, eustress is a new term for me. I have to admit, I did not know that that word actually existed. Um, so it actually, it, you could view this as good stress. And eustress, it's, it comes from the Greek uh, formation, the word EU. Um, Greek means well, and then of course stress, uh, we, we know what, uh, what stress is. So it means good stress. Um, the definition isn't quite that clear. There are some, um, some, some slight nuances that we'll talk about momentarily, but we can view it as good stress for, for the, this current moment. And then the second subdivision or domain, however you'd like to look at that, is distress. And I think this is what we're probably more typically used to. And under that category of distress, we have four different types of stress. And we're going to look at each one of those. And they do go down in order of severity. So ambient stress is kind of the lightest or easiest one, routine stress, sudden stress, and then uh, finally traumatic stress. 
most of our attention today is going to be focused right around that routine and sudden stress. Um, not so much, we're not going to dive into traumatic stress today. And, um, and of course, we're not going to talk too much about ambient or um, about eustress because it's, I'm focusing on the negatives today, which is somewhat unlike me, but that's what I'll be doing. Okay, so let's talk a little bit deeper about eustress. So um, this is actually a, well, obviously it's a real picture of me. And this was this weekend when my partner came home and he surprised me by being able to uh, afford, to, not afford, but be able to buy two rolls of toilet paper. Um, that was definitely a good stress. The stress in that is why is that something we struggle with right now? Um, but the good part is that we successfully were able to, to get some. So I was pretty excited and I told him to take a picture of me because I'm going to use that in a training. And um, and he didn't believe me, but here I am using it as a, an example. So <laughs> let me just give you, let's go through a little bit of a better definition of, of eustress. So eustress or positive stress, it's that stress we sometimes experience when there's something good going on. So the things that I had listed up here is like a promotion or pay raise, or maybe getting married or engaging in a new relationship having a new child, family member, or pet, you know, even feeling productive. That's the one that I think I relate to, well, I try to relate to most of the time when there is a lot going on at work and, and there's a little bit of stress there, but you're also going through your to-do list, like you're crossing things off. It feels really good. Like there's that pressure to perform and you're, and you're uh, achieving, you're meeting up to those expectations. So that's a really great example of positive stress or use stress. But nonetheless, it, it is stress and it does consume our thoughts, um, but it's not quite like the level of distress that, um, that we often experience. And of course, that's what we're gonna um, talk about a little bit more today. So why don't we go ahead and look at distress. So I want to highlight something with, with distress. And going back to that definition, we talk about stress being those set of reactions that we have when we respond to change and also when we respond to demand. So when we think about, um, when we think about where we are currently, obviously we are in a very different reality than we would have ever expected maybe a month ago or two months ago. Um, and with this new set of circumstances, with this new reality, uh, it's no wonder that people are experiencing stress. There's change, and there's also new and different demands that we have to experience. So for example, some of those changes, while these, some of these changes are actually positive, um, they still produce stress. So you know, I haven't experienced traffic in quite some time. I actually drove my car for the first time in two weeks over the weekend. Um, just wanna make sure it still worked. Um, uh, not leaving my home very often, very few people out, um, new work roles and assignments. Our, our work has shifted, as I'm sure many of you have also shifted in, in work. My new work setting is, is quite different than my old work setting. And, um, and how we work and my setup is all different. And, and there's also this new risk of, of getting sick, where normally I didn't worry so much about um, getting the flu. I mean, I certainly do want it, but I'm actually, you know, I have to admit that I do feel a little bit of stress about actually getting COVID-19. So those are all some of the changes that I think that I know I'm experiencing, and I'm sure many of you are also experiencing uh, similar changes. 
Now, if we look at it from the perspective of demands, we have a new set of demands. So working from home, um, you know, I now have to make sure that I'm accountable. I have this pressure that I feel of, you know, they don't, my boss doesn't see me in the office every day. I want to make sure she knows that I'm working and not just napping through my entire day. Um, so that set of demands is kind of new for me and I'm having to adapt to that. Um, social distancing brings a whole new set of demands. When we were grocery shopping over the weekend, um, you know, I was wearing a mask. That was the first time I was wearing a mask during this crisis. So that was a change. That was a new demand on me. And making sure that as I'm shopping for produce, I found that to be particularly challenging to maintain distance between people. Um, there were times I'm like, well, you know what? I'm not going to stand here and wait forever until this person moves. I'm just going to go and pick my apples um, from the bin. And uh, But I had this thought process. And that is definitely part of part of stress. It's a new demand. Um, we have the responsibility to avoid spreading infection. So we have the responsibility to wash our hands, wear masks if we're going out in public, and even just the new rules about leaving home. So we could look at our current situation from both perspectives of how there's a lot of change in our environment, but also how there's a lot of new demands um, in our environment. Those two things combined are definitely gonna create this sense of, or, or a, a set of reactions in our body, so we're able to better respond to them. So on the, on the slide right now, I have the five negative stresses or distresses um, listed up on the screen. And if you know me, I usually like to, um, I like to use analogies quite a bit. And so I'm going to try to carry this through today's presentation. But, you know, with each stress, you can imagine that, you know, we have a, you know, we have a little test tube for each uh, for each event or circumstance that we experience. And depending on how stressful that experience is, there's a certain level of liquid or water or chemicals. You could think about it as uh, however you would like to. So ambient stress, that's, we'll dive into that in a moment, but it's the probably the least amount of stress. So I put just a little bit of liquid in the bottom of that test tube. Now we look at routine stress. So you'll see that it's increasing in severity. So routine stress has a little bit more liquid in those test tubes. We have sudden negative stress. There's a lot more fluid in there. And then we have traumatic stress where our test tube is, is overflowing, where the container that, that we have to hold that situation and hold our responses and our reactions, it, it's not big enough for the, for the reactions and changes that we have going on in our body. Therefore, it overflows. So um, we'll revisit this as we continue through the presentation, but I want you to think about that and think about which situations you experience sometimes and, and how much stress, um, if you were to put that into a test tube, how much stress do you think um, would, that, would that fill up with? Okay, so I'm going to talk first about ambient stress. So you can view ambient stress as, as background stress. You can view it as background noise. And examples include pollution, noise, world events. Let me give you a quick, uh, 
uh, definition. Joan Campbell, um, she actually uh, did a lot of research about this and she did create a measurement tool. Um, I, I'm not sharing that here. I, I didn't look too much into that measurement tool. I just don't think it's super important, but um, ambient stress, uh, characteristics of ambient stressors are that they are chronic, negatively valued, non-urgent, physically perceptible, and intractable to the efforts of individuals to change them. So in other words, it's things that are going on that we don't have a whole lot of control over, but it doesn't mean that they don't affect us. I know that was a double negative. They do have some, uh, they do have some impact on us. So, you know, I think one of the best examples is that I can give personally is, you know, I moved to LA from New York City. I lived in New York City for four years. And in New York City, we lived in a very tiny apartment and we were on, we lived in the Upper East Side. I'm not sure who's familiar with New York City or not, but we lived on the Upper East Side on East, 80, uh, East 86th Street, excuse me, and 2nd Avenue. So that was a pretty big intersection, even for New York. Like that was a very busy intersection. Our apartment was on the fourth floor. Our apartment faced the windows uh, that faced the street. Or, I'm sorry, our apartment had windows that faced the street and that's where our tiny living room was. And um, we, we heard noise constantly. Um, there were a ton of sirens. There were a lot of hospitals right in that area. Um, lots of traffic, lots of people. A new subway station was being built. And um, as you have probably heard, New Yorkers work hard and that comes to construction too. We would hear jackhammers out in front of our apartments, you know, up until 10 p.m. on some evenings. So that probably crossed over from ambient stress into routine stress. But in general, that noise that we had to deal with, we never really complained about it. We just dealt with it, but we knew it was there. When we were watching TV, we heard a siren coming. We would actually just instinctively pause the TV, wait till the siren went by, then return to our show. We wouldn't say a thing. Sometimes we'd be like, you realize we do this without even thinking. We'd laugh, you know, and, and move on. So, um, but that's one example. You know, another example is, you know, people are bothered by pollution. There's, we could do some things about it, but it's, it's going to be there. We can't control everybody. And so that's something to just, so something to acknowledge. We do have ways that we could, <laughs> someone put comment to fake news, thank you, that's funny. Um, but yeah, like that of course is also, would be a, a possible ambient stress. Um, but you know, something that was, uh, that I had ambient stress about before is like one of my, I guess, social issues is I don't like am, animal cruelty is something that kind of hits home with me. It's typically an ambient stressor. I don't think much about it. Um, but then for whatever reason, I started to notice that I thought about it more often. I started to recognize when I heard news stories and things like that. And so I recently, uh, so far so good, but I've been a vegetarian for a couple months now. And the reason I share that is because I wanted to do something because my ambient stress I started to recognize it. It was very perceivable to me. It started to creep into routine stress a bit. So I wanted to do something for me, not for anybody else. I wanted to do something for me so I felt like I had some level of control over this situation. So we could think about that when we, uh, when we recognize that there are some issues out there in the world that cause this ambient stress. And there are things that we can do about it, at least to control our section of that. Does anybody have any other examples that they'd like to share of what they think they might experience as ambient stress? Um, feel free to type those in. And while you do that, I'll just highlight that 
as we talk about ambient stress and any other stress, it is up to perception. What one person finds as stressful, I may not find stressful, vice versa. So it really depends on how we perceive the world, our experiences in life, um, maybe past uh, traumatic histories that we have. There are so many things that, that go into this. Um, so perception is incredibly important. And, and thank you, Salvador, for, for saying that. Yeah, um, some people do not, they don't really worry about pollution. It doesn't bother them. And some people do, and there's nothing right or wrong. It's about acknowledging what does cause even a lower level of stress. Um, but yeah, traffic is a good one. Um, for some people, uh, traffic is probably one of those things that it might be ambient. And for some people, it might actually be uh, more of a routine stress, something that they um, that actually rises above that ambient level. Um, I think when I view traffic, you know, when I'm sitting here in my in my office at home, I think, yeah, traffic is frustrating, um, you know, but I don't give it much thought. So it's a little bit ambient right now. But then when I get in my car and I have to drive, and let's say these are normal times, and there actually is traffic, then it's going to escalate. I'm actually going to feel that because I might have to respond more so in the meantime. Um, uh, but Jean mentions going to work every day. Parking is a great one. Um, totally agree. There are things that we know are frustrating sometimes, but you know, where it, it's not it's not producing any levels of like significant anxiety for us. So let's go to routine stress. So uh, this one I think is where we are all way more familiar with. So routine stress is probably what you know of as stress. These are deadlines that we have at work or how much work we have, whether it's due at a certain time, but just having too much work to do. Um, maybe you have troubles with your personal budget. Maybe you're having relationship issues. Just taking care of your family, taking care of your children, taking care of your pets. Maybe you have some health challenges. All of those things are stress that we deal with on a regular basis. They're pretty routine. And this is such a wide range because some of the routine stress could be pretty low. Like the, those test tubes, maybe just a little bit at the bottom, millennials. <laughs> Thank you for that comment. That makes me laugh and I appreciate it. And um, I want to say that uh, laughter is an excellent way to de-stress. And so we'll talk about that in a, in a few moment, moments. <laughs> but, um, but anyways, the, the range of what could be stressful in this routine way can be very, very different for everyone. And again, it goes back to perceptions how we, what experiences we've had that might make this a little bit less stressful. If there are any questions about routine stress, feel free to type those in. Um, I'm not going to ask for examples necessarily on this one because I just think there are so many and I think we all probably understand that. Um, traffic for me is probably, like I said before, probably more of a routine stress because I'm still still adapting to not taking subways everywhere, even though it's been almost a year. But so a sudden negative uh, stress, this one, this one's really tough. It, it, it could be it, the examples that I have up here, loss of a family member, a loved one, um, loss of significant resources, um, loss of a relationship, so maybe a divorce, um, perhaps suddenly getting uh, significantly ill, that could be a sudden negative stress. This is the stuff that 
we will definitely feel, we know that this is happening and having an impact on our life. And, uh, and it's significant. It impacts how we, it may impact how we view the world. So, you know, if we look at, I want to kind of go through this in an example because it could be a little bit confusing because of that word sudden. You know, I, I think we probably have all had somebody who has died in our lives. And sometimes that death might happen um, suddenly, or maybe sometimes we know that this person was going to die relatively soon because of an existing illness. And you may wonder, well, is that sudden negative stress because when that individual did pass, like we expected it, we knew that was going to happen. Now, I would still argue that that is sudden negative stress. Even though we were preparing for that, we knew it was going to happen. I kind of view that that preparation phase, that coping beforehand of the of what we know might happen, what we expect to happen. I kind of view that as maybe some high level routine stress. But when the when that death actually does occur no matter how much we prep for it, it still takes a toll. It's still a really big change for us. And when we go back and think, remember this is a set of demands or changes in us um, or in our, in, in our world, losing somebody, that's a significant change. And it might also put new demands on us. If we have lost a spouse um, or we have a, seri you know, a long-term partner, maybe we break up with them, that's gonna, that's gonna be a big change for our world. And also it represents new demands on our life. Um, unexpectedly losing your job. We know a lot of people are so, I guess I, the way to frame this is I feel so privileged and lucky to be able to work and have a job where I could work from home. I know that there are millions of people who are experiencing these sudden negative stresses, particularly around unexpected loss of, of resources. So um, does anyone have any questions about, or any, uh, any other ideas of what sudden negative stress might, might mean, or any other examples that you might think of that I didn't cover? And while, while some of those comments may or may not come in, I, I could think of, um, I lost a, my dog uh, two years ago, um, and, uh, and that was a really sudden negative stress for me. That definitely impacted my, my perceptions and my views. Um, so perhaps others can possibly empathize with that as well. So I don't see a whole lot of comments coming in, so I'm going to go ahead and, and skip to traumatic stress. A major accident. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. That's exactly right. Like getting into a car wreck. Um, it, it, for me, that would definitely be a sudden negative stress. Um, new change. That would be a big change in your life. Also represents um, new demands. Um, medical issues arising. Violet, thank you. That's such an important one and really so consistent with, uh, with what we're experiencing today. Jean, you say store short on toilet paper. For some people, that could definitely be a sudden negative stress. Uh, maybe for others, it might be about, uh, might be more of that routine stress, even though it is sudden and negative. But, you know, we'd want to look at those levels as well. Now, Marlene, you, you bring up a really good one here. Uh, Kobe's death. That, you know, I think for some people, that could be a sudden negative stress. He was definitely a, a role model for so many. I'm not a sports fan, but even for me, I, I, 
I was impacted by that because I saw how so many people around the world, but particularly here in Los Angeles, were impacted by that. So absolutely, thank you so much. That's a really good um, example uh, for how it could, it may not even happen directly to you, but something can still be uh, significantly stressful. And so now we're going to move into traumatic stress, and we are not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I'm going to read you the SAMHSA definition, and that's a um, that's an event or a series of events or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, and it has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Remember, what's going to be traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for the next. And if you feel traumatized by something or highly stressed from something, there is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing abnormal about that. That is our bodies telling us that something is up and we need to respond to that, which is what we'll talk about today. And Javier, I see your comment where you say that can work both ways, right? Um, I, can you explain just a little bit more by what you mean by that? Um, I'm not 100% sure, but and once you do, then I'll jump back in and definitely clarify for you. Um, when we experience traumatic stress, our fight or flight response system is activated. I think many of you are probably aware of that. And we'll, um, we're not going to talk about that process necessarily. Um, not to that extreme, but the process that leads up to fight or flight is all is what we're going to talk about, but not at that level of where we are running to save our lives. So I hope that makes sense. And hopefully as we go through, it'll make more sense. Um, and there you see the traumatic stress, that little test tube there is overflowing. And that's because our ability to cope with the situation was exceeded by, um, by the level of, of stress and trauma that that was going on at that time. Okay, so how full is your glass? So remember how we talked about, you know, each of those test tubes represents a stressful situation. And each of those test tubes has a certain amount of liquid in there, whether you want to view that as water or chemicals or, or whatever you'd like to view that as. I like to just view it as water. But as you know, it's not like, you know, maybe you're experiencing um, stress from, you know, from having to ensure that your children are doing their studies while being at home. And then, you know, and then your partner gets sick and you're worried it might be COVID-19. It's not like the stress of having to teach your children and making sure they're on task. That stress just doesn't go away. It's still there. Our focus may be more on, um, on the, the very present, like, oh my gosh, my partner's sick. I hope this isn't that. But it doesn't go away. So we can view stress as cumulative. So when you think about all the situations you have in your life, all of those test tubes, and they're all filled with various amounts of, of water, your glass is you. That's your ability to deal with stress. And we're going to pour each one of those stressful situations into this glass. And for some people, your glass might be right like this one on the screen where it's halfway. You have some stress, but you still have plenty of room before you're going to feel completely overwhelmed. Um, and you're not running on empty. Like if you have an empty glass, well then like you have nothing to drink. You know, there's not a whole lot of motivation to do anything. So we need a little bit of stress, but we want to make sure that there's balance. So 
we're going to come back to this analogy um, near the end of the presentation, but I want you to think about it from that perspective. Each stressful thing we have, it's cumulative. All that stress kind of gets poured into us as vessels. And, um, and how full is our vessel with stress or however we want to view that? So, so I want to go back to Javier's comment. So thank you for explaining this more. Uh, so it could work both ways. Experience Kobe's death as a loss for some who miss him, but as anger for survivors who seem um, being celebrated. So, you know, I, you know, that actually, that thought came to mind as well when uh, immediate after the days of that happened where it, everything was so focused on him and like, I'm like, wow, there are nine other people, I think eight other people who lost their lives. And yeah, absolutely. You know, again, I think how we experience it is going to be unique to each individual person. And um, some people probably did experience sadness for losing a role model, but also maybe anger for um, not giving the same attention to the to other individuals who might have lost their lives. So yeah, I think it's a really great point. And, um, and it's, yeah, it's important to highlight. Okay, so let's go through an example. And this is when we're gonna start diving into some of this medical, physical stuff. And I use me as an example that way, if we laugh at it, it's only me and my feelings won't be too hurt. So stress, here's me as an example. So I am thinking, do I work from home? Toilet paper, should I wear a mask? People are getting sick. Um, I could add another one there. I made the uh, realization that I'm not gonna be able to get a haircut. So you may notice that this picture was taken on the weekend and here I am with much shorter hair. I went ahead and did it myself. That was a little bit of a stressor. But here I have all of these changes and new demands that I'm thinking about. And they are causing me to experience some level of stress. So I, in order to demonstrate what I think is gonna be happening in my body, it can be really complicated. So I broke it down into a somewhat, I guess you could call this a, a cartoon. So please forgive my graphic design uh, shortcomings here, but I wanna focus on two key elements of our brain. There are many more, but I'm only gonna focus on two that they have a real significant response in how we deal with stress. That's the amygdala and that's the hypothalamus. And so they, are, they both live very close together in, inside the, the middle of our brain there. The amygdala is really in charge of a lot of uh, uh, emotional response and, and control. And the hypothalamus does a whole lot of different things. <laughs> but the function we're gonna focus on is that it, uh, it's the control center for when we are experiencing a threat or when we're experiencing stress. Um, so we're gonna look at these two um, components of the brain and we're gonna pretend that they're having a dialogue to help understand, to help uh, kind of break down what this process really looks like. Okay. So here we have the amygdala. And I'm gonna read this message. So the amygdala is sending us an email, not us. He's sending an email or she, I'm sorry, I should, uh, I'm not sure if my amygdala is male or female or maybe just non-binary, um, but the amygdala is sending a message to the hypothalamus. Hi, hypothalamus, I hope this message finds you well. The census picked up a possible threat from the media about a pandemic. I cross-referenced I cross it with some information I found in the memory and sure enough, pandemics are bad. 
it actually reminds this human of when he lived in New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina struck, um, activating the emotion of anxiety and a bit of fear to motivate the human. Can you alert the autonomic nervous system so the body is ready to act on the motivation? So let me explain this message. So as you know, our brains don't email different parts of the body. However, this message demonstrates a whole bunch of processes that the amygdala is, is engaging in. So the amygdala is engaging in my perceptions, my five senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. And it noticed that it was picking up, there's this threat, like there's this talk of a pandemic. So the amygdala kind of red flags that. It gets some information from my memories. Now this happens in like a split second. So it's not always perfect, but it knows because I know what a pandemic is or I had some idea of what a pandemic is. It knows that it's bad. So my amygdala is, you know, again, combing through all of my perceptual data. It's picking up pandemic. It's picking up kind of heightened anxiety in the media. It's picking up conversations that I'm having with friends. Like, hey, this is something we need to pay attention to. So the amygdala is sending this message to the hypothalamus saying, hey, we have a threat here. So I think you're gonna to need to activate the autonomic nervous system. And the other element that the amygdala is doing is that it's also looking at some of my previous experiences. So the human that they're referring to is of course me, and I, I did live in New Orleans during the times of Katrina and many other hurricanes, and I have to admit it does remind me a bit. Now there are two very different uh, catastrophes, but there's still kind of this general sense of like so many people coming together, like so many people are losing lives and really horrible things are happening to to, to, to humans that we need to care for. So the amygdala kind of picked up on that. And so it created this warning that gets sent to, again, to the hypothalamus to say, hey, this is what we have. I need you to activate the autonomic nervous system. So why don't we go and take a look at what the ANS means? So I have to catch myself. I always want to say automatic nervous system. It's not the automatic nervous system, even though it is automatic, it's autonomic. And that autonomic, see now I, I just myself, <laughs> the autonomic nervous system, um, it, it, it triggers either the sympathetic ner nervous system or the parasympathetic nervous system. Now we don't have to go into great detail, but think about it like this, the sympathetic nervous system, it's a whole set of processes that are way too complex for my brain to understand. But you could view the sympathetic nervous system as activating. That's when if the hypothalamus, it switches it to the sympathetic nervous system, all of a sudden I'm activated, I'm ready to respond to whatever it is. Now, when it switches it to the parasympathetic nervous system, it cools everything off. It says the threat is passed, you are good to go. Let's get this body back to where it was before this threat. Let's calm everything down. Now, we get activated way faster than we do deactivated. Many of you can probably empathize with that. We could get activated in a moment's notice, but to be deactivated, that's gonna take some time. So 
Here we have the hypothalamus, who you met uh, a couple slides ago, that is kind of the shape of it in the brain. <laughs> Although I don't think it has that smile, it's probably not purple. Um, and I'm sure if there's any uh, neurologist on the, on the line, you're probably cringing at my art. But, um, but anyways, the hypothalamus, it activates that system. And it's gonna turn on that sympathetic nervous system so I'm prepared. So let's look at what that next message is gonna be. So my hypothalamus, it's replying to the amygdala and it says, hey, thanks for your message. I'm doing pretty well, lots of routine stress to deal with. Anyways, I received your message and I have already activated the autonomic nervous system. So this happens so quickly that the hypothalamus wasn't even gonna respond, like just does it. And uh, so anyways, I distracted myself. By the time you receive this, epinephrine, norepinephrine and cortisol are already flowing so the human will be ready to act. I'm glad you activated a little bit of fear in addition to anxiety. Be careful though, because there's already a decent amount of stress hormones flowing from routine stress that this human has been dealing with. We received a memo from the cardiac department stating that blood pressure has been pretty high lately. So, here we have, again, this message, of course, doesn't necessarily happen this way, but we're getting a little bit more information. The hypothalamus did what it's supposed to, it activated it, and now there's stress hormones flowing through my body. And we're also getting this kind of feedback loop because, hey, we may already have high blood pressure from previous stressors. Remember, once we, once we have some stress, it doesn't go away with a new stressor. We just pour it in that cup and our cup keeps going up and up. So, um, so thank you, uh, hypothalamus, for that message. Now, let's see what the amygdala is going to respond back. So you'll see the email thread there is getting more and more reply or, uh, uh, yeah, replies. So hi, hypothalamus. Thank you for the fast response. Definitely a lot going on. That's supposed to say on. I apologize about that typo. Definitely a lot going on with this human right now. You're right, the human's blood pressure is high. I received a perception that this is the case because he recently had his blood pressure checked. As a result, I'm going to ask you to respond to this health concern also. He needs more motivation to get this stress under control. So we'll talk about these chemicals in a little bit, but what's really interesting, and you're starting to see this, is that there's a, cycl uh, a cyclical effect here. So the stress hormones that we'll talk about, they raise blood pressure. And now I'm getting stressed because I might have high blood pressure. So my amygdala, it, it doesn't really know specifically like, oh, he has high blood pressure, so we better lower on, this, uh, on these stress hormones. Like, no, it just has this response. So now I'm starting to worry like, oh my God, I have high blood pressure. So what that's gonna, do you know what that's going to respond with? More high blood pressure, because now I'm worried about it. So we'll, we'll touch more on that uh, in a little bit. And uh, I also have a comment here. This affects kids with autism who have dysregulation with ANS issues. So thank you so much for that, that comment. I don't, I don't have the, the knowledge base, but yeah, I, I can imagine that that's a really fascinating topic. And I'm glad you brought it up because that ANS system is so important. And, and we know that individuals with autism, there may be some dysregulation there. So I'd be really curious to know what that looks like. So thank you for that comment. It's certainly something in addition that would be really great for me to learn more about. 
Okay, so I think this is my last message uh, that I have in this little comic strip. So the hypothalamus is going to say, hi, amygdala. Yep, I went ahead and activated the ANS in response to this blood pressure concern also. The ANS is going to add a bit more epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol into the mix. It's going to contribute to the problem, but I hope it is a wake-up call. As you know, the ANS has the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system team has been working overtime. However, have you seen the parasympathetic nervous system team lately? I think they all might be working from home. So here in this example, my ANS or the uh, my ANS is working overtime to activate the sympathetic nervous system. However, my, uh, my parasympathetic nervous system may not be working so much at this point because it's not calming down. If anything, my anxiety may be going up. So again, this is all a scenario here, but um, it's, it's important to look at that distinction. So we are gonna focus more so on, um, on some of these chemicals that are produced by this system. Again, I wanna just emphasize how complex this is. And I am you know, minimizing this to an incredible degree, primarily for my own understanding because it's so complex. Um, but also I just wanna focus on a few key components. So, and thank you, Jean, for putting some of that information. So just so I could repeat, sympathetic uh, nervous system uh, control the central nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system controls the autonomic nervous system. So sympathetic nervous system creates anxiety. A absolutely, exactly right. Thank you for that. And so um, I want to talk about epinephrine and norepinephrine. So these are two chemicals they, get, uh, they are uh, neurotransmitters, but they also serve as hormones. And this gets activated. So when we activate that sympathetic nervous system, this is one of the first things that happen. So many of you may know these chemicals or hormones by the, by the name adrenaline and also noradrenaline. And there, there is a difference between adrenaline and noradrenaline, or if we want to use this language, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. There is a difference there, but we are not going to focus on that. Let's just say they, they do work together and they produce similar things. But there are some, of course, you know, again, if I was coming from a neurological background, I could probably go into a lot more detail, but we won't do that. So uh, they are primarily produced by our adrenal glands, and those are located right above each of our kidneys. And once these two chemicals are produced, they have a variety of effects. So you don't necessarily need to know these technical names. You could just say, this is adrenaline. That's what we're focusing on. But let's look at some of the very specific effects that they have. And I also wanted to comment, I, uh, so this is a roller coaster I went on. I was born and raised in Cleveland. There's an amusement park in Cleveland or right outside that is amazing. And you know, I used to go there all the time as a young adult and I could handle these roller coasters, no problem. And I felt that adrenaline run through my body and it was good. Like it was a lot of fun. Like adrenaline has some good feelings to it. But I have to tell you, I went back to this amusement park and went on this roller coaster maybe two years ago and I was 39. And I can assure you that I don't know what happens. That's a topic for another day, but 
going on a, this roller coaster at 39 is way different than going on this roller coaster at 25. I felt the impact of that adrenaline. Um, I actually got lightheaded. I was a little nervous. Anyways, um, my stress response was kicking in at that point. Now, uh, let's talk about blood, blood pressure. And then we're going to tie that to adrenaline and, and what that connection is. So blood pressure, the top number, you maybe uh, for those of you who've had your blood pressure taken, um, there's the systolic and diastolic numbers. We don't need to know those words. That's okay. There's a top number and a bottom number. I was really fascinated by this. So the top number, it's how much pressure is exerted on the walls of your arteries during the actual beat of the heart. And then between the beats of the heart, there's still pressure that's being exerted on those arteries. And that bottom number, the diastolic number, measures the amount of pressure that is against the walls of the arteries in between those beats. So I just found that really interesting. And the reason, so when adrenaline gets in our system, it has this impact of increasing our blood pressure. The reason it does that is because our body wants to respond to whatever situation is giving us this stress. In order to do that, we need more oxygen, we need more food, we want to be alert and aware. So our bodies, it just, our heart, I should say, it pumps, the, uh, it pumps blood harder and faster. So all of those major organs and, and muscles, so they get the energy that they need so that they can respond. So that's why we have that. That's why we have that, that effect. Now, so again, the, the heightened blood pressure, it's purposeful. We wouldn't want to not ever have high blood pressure because we want to be able to respond. We want our organs and we want our muscles to be able to, uh, to, be able to uh, respond appropriately to these things. However, when we have adrenaline in our, in our system at heightened amounts or cortisol, which I'll talk about in a moment, when that's in our bodies, past the time that the threat is over, if we're still feeling anxious, if we're still thinking about what's going on and we're feeling stressed about it, um, our blood pressure is going to stay high. And that's not, that's not a good thing. High blood pressure is good when you're exercising. It's good when you need to respond to something. But when you're not in one of those situations and you have high blood pressure, we know that that can be bad. Your heart's still working really hard. And I know that when I'm overworked, I just get exhausted and I crash. We don't want that to happen to your heart. Your heart is the same way. And so because the, the, the heart during heightened blood pressure is, is still pumping blood everywhere, it can actually damage some of those organs that have really, really tiny blood vessels. So like you think about our eyes, our kidneys, our brain, they have these tiny little capillaries and blood vessels and they're getting this big influx and they're responding to this high blood pressure and that's actually gonna start to damage them a little bit. So that's why people with chronic high blood pressure, you could have problems such as diabetes because you're not able, the kidneys aren't working as well. Um, you could have problems with your eyes, the brain, you could have a stroke because you're not getting enough, uh, the, the arteries that go up to the brain are getting damaged, so they're not getting the food they need. So that's why it's bad over a long term. So I have a question here. Can you speak on anxiety disorders and the stress response system? So yeah, that I, I could speak briefly about that. That might be a part two training, but when people who do have anxiety disorders, let's say, let's just say a generalized anxiety disorder, 
it goes back to perception and we're perceiving things in our world to be maybe a little bit more stressful than they actually are, or maybe things really are stressful and we don't have enough coping mechanisms to deal with that. So maybe our thoughts kind of catastrophize. I know sometimes I do this, you know, maybe, um, you know, we start to, let's, for example, let's say we start to work from home and now I'm starting feeling anxious, like, oh my gosh, what if I lose my job? Oh my gosh, what if I have no money and I can't pay my rent? You know, in the end, I know I'll be okay. That's me spiraling down. And let's say I have a generalized anxiety disorder. That could be a component of that. So we have how, that's a very brief overview of how anxiety can contribute to this overall stress. It's because of my perceptions and my coping mechanisms, and there could be a variety of other reasons there. But that's activating. I am internally activating my own stress response system. It's my own thoughts that are activating it. So the amygdala is picking up on my thoughts and saying, oh my gosh, we're in crisis. We have to do something. We have to get this blood pumping. So that's what it's doing. So our, someone who has anxiety disorders, there's a, or, or a, an anxiety disorder, excuse me, there's a good chance that their system is constantly activated, that they are always in that sympathetic stress response mode, that that system, the hypothalamus, it activated that, it pulled the trigger, and it just has not used that parasympathetic stress response system. So I hope that helps to answer. That's actually a really great question. You could probably, I, I could go on for much longer, and that's a great idea for a follow-up training because I was thinking this might need a part two. But I hope that gives you a little bit of an idea in a nutshell. So we talked about how adrenaline has an impact on your heart. It raises your blood pressure. Let's also look at how adrenaline impacts our breathing. So it's helpful because adrenaline, it opens up some of these really small, underutilized air passageways in our lungs. And the purpose of that is our lungs, our lungs want to take in more oxygen. So that way they can deliver the oxygen to the blood and the blood can, can deliver all that oxygen to all the body parts that need it. And our breathing becomes faster because we want to get more oxygen from the air. It's a really important process. You know, I was, as I was thinking about this, uh, for some reason, the, the thought of Amazon uh, popped in my head because right now I, I know I am ordering more from Amazon because you may not be able to get it at the store I'm working from home. And sometimes my coping mechanism includes shopping. And so Amazon is getting this really significant influx of, hey, we have more people ordering. So we have to pull in the Troops. And just like Amazon.com, our, our bodies are like, hey, we need oxygen in all these muscles. We need food in all these muscles. We have to get this process going quick in order to meet the demand. So that's why our breathing uh, may become a little bit more intense when we're feeling that adrenaline hit us. Now, the way this is not helpful is that it could actually result, now it's not that common, but it could result in hyperventilating. And that's when we are breathing out too much and not breathing in enough. So we lower the amount of carbon dioxide in our bodies. And you may think carbon dioxide, isn't that bad? I mean, no, it's actually really important. We need, our bodies need to maintain this level between oxygen and carbon dioxide. And, and if we don't have enough carbon dioxide, this is really interesting. This is a fun fact. Well, I think it's a fun fact. But some of the blood vessels that go into our brain, they actually narrow a bit. And so our brains aren't able to get enough of the oxygen and blood and food that it needs to perform. 
So you might get lightheaded. I don't know if anyone here has ever gotten lightheaded, but it's a little bit of a scary thing. And then once you know, you know, once you know what that experience is like and that it happens, fine. But the first time or when it happens really seriously, it can be, it can be a scary thing. And uh, so moving on, uh, hyperventilating can also trigger a panic attack or a panic attack can trigger hyperventilating. So those can um, go hand in hand sometimes. Um, so that's how adrenaline, one of the many chemicals, can impact our breathing and our bodies and our lungs. Um, I want to move into cortisol. Has anyone heard of cortisol? I feel like this has been getting more and more attention recently. There's been a lot more research on it. Yeah, I see a lot of yeses. Good, good, good to hear that. And if you haven't, uh, if you haven't heard of it, um, let me know. So cortisol, it's another hormone. Now this is produced by our adrenal glands. So we talked really quickly about the adrenal glands before. Those are those things right on top of our kidneys and they produce this hormone. They work alongside, um, they work alongside adrenaline and they have some similar impacts but they work very differently. And cortisol, again, it's, it's a necessary chemical. It's super important. It has some really, uh, some really damaging side effects when it's chronic, when we are always having high levels of cortisol in our body. And we always do have cortisol, cortisol, excuse me, flowing in our blood. But when we have higher stress, you can bet that your levels of cortisol are also going to be higher. Now, again, it's important to have this chemical or this hormone in our blood because it allows us to respond and react to situations. But if we are always in that activated mode, then we're going to start to see some, some negative things. So let's, I'm going to focus on two of those impacts that cortisol can have on the body. Now this one on the immune system, this one to me is just fascinating. I still struggle to kind of really wrap my head around it. And the reason is the immune system, it's, it's certainly out of my scope of, of practice, but it's a very complex system and it needs to maintain a balance of, you know, not going overboard, but still being there to, to fight. And I think you're hearing about this in the news. I, you know, we've been hearing in the media about how they're talking about some immunosuppressants to help people who are really struggling with the, uh, with the COVID-19 virus. And I'm like, why is that? You know, I, we need our immune systems. Why do you want to suppress it? Well, it needs to be balanced. And sometimes our immune system is going to overdrive and then it starts attacking itself and it starts having harm on itself. So that's not good. It needs to be where it's functional, not too low functioning, not too high functioning, but right in the middle. So cortisol and the immune system, it, cortisol does activate it. It adjusts the immune system so the body can best respond to whatever the situation is at that moment. And one of the ways it does that is that it limits, the immune system will then cap or limit how much inflammation is taking place in the body. Now, inflammation is necessary, because that's where the healing process begins. But the immune system during times of stress, it puts a cap on that because it needs to save all of its resources because there might be things going on that we need to respond to. So let's not waste a lot of energy on all this inflammation. Let's hold it back a little bit so we can respond. So yeah, in the moment, awesome, very helpful. But what happens when we are chronically exposed to cortisol? Well, 
our immune systems, they just can't maintain that level, that balance. It's a lot of energy trying to maintain these different levels of inflammation. And again, just like the heart, just like me as a whole human, I can't maintain a certain level of performance constantly. If, it, if I'm performing really, really high, I'm gonna eventually crash. And so the immune system, it gets tired, it gets overworked, and ultimately it becomes dysregulated. So many of us already have some viruses in our body that they're, they're latent, like they're there, but our immune system, the immune system um, is kind of like a babysitter for those viruses. It's like, we got our eye on you, we can't kill you, we know you're here, but we're not gonna let you do anything bad to this body. <laughs> we're just gonna watch you. And so, but then the immune system's like, whoo, I am so overworked, I need to take a little nap. So those latent viruses that are floating around in our body, they're like, all right, the guardian, the watchdog is not looking, so I'm gonna start wreaking havoc. Now, I can give a very specific example. Um, I don't know if anyone here has had cold sores. I will admit that I do get cold sores. You don't have to admit that you get them, but I will, I will um, you know, put that out there. I sometimes get cold sores, and cold sores are caused by a virus, and typically that virus is just floating around in my system. It's not doing anything today. I don't have any cold sores. I get them like maybe once a year, I'll get one. And I had a really stressful event earlier this year. I was doing a training. I felt like things were just going haywire. I was so stressed out. And sure enough, two days later, I got a cold sore. And it was like the biggest cold sore I've had in years. And um, I know exactly what happened. My immune system was in overdrive. And then it just crashed. And that virus was in my body. It's like, woohoo, we are going to have a party. And we're going to put a cold sore in David's mouth. And sure enough, it did. And so it was such a real example of how closely connected our mind and bodies are. So then the last impact of stress is cortisol and fat. Again, there are many, many impacts. We're only going to cover a few of these. But cortisol, when it's flowing, again, it's preparing ourselves to respond to something. It gives us this appetite for sugary, high-carb foods. Now, I typically have that appetite anyways. I am a huge sweets fan. Um, but when I'm stressed, I have that desire even more. And cortisol, what it does, what it does is it, it's impacting our metabolism. And it wants us to have extra energy because it doesn't really know what we're responding to. But it's just like, we got to respond to whatever it is. So let's start. We, we need energy now. And we might need energy right in the immediate future. So we're going to start not only using energy, we're going to start saving it. So cortisol and our metabolism, it's like, okay, well, let's start saving energy in a central location. Well, guess where that is? That's right in our tummies. It's a central location. It's really easy for our organs to say, hey, there's some food. I could easily grab a snack from the tummy because there's all this extra fat there. Okay, it's not quite that easy. But the intent is there. And that's why people who are really stressed, but they still have active, healthy lifestyles, you may notice like sometimes they still can't get rid of that belly. Um, I think I do have a little bit more, more stress than I would like to. Because I, you know, I, I am pretty healthy. I eat pretty well aside from those sweets. I've never seen a set of abs on myself. And I just blame it on cortisol. Um, that's my excuse. And you guys all have permission to use that excuse for not having a set of six-pack uh, six abs as well. Um, so as you'll see, though, it's a very adaptive. It's a really necessary function. But 
if we are always stressed, our system's always putting some extra food reserves right around those organs. And so we always may have a little extra padding there. So we talked about how stress has varying levels. We've talked about how stress causes our bodies to respond. We've looked at two different chemicals, adrenaline and cortisol, and we looked at how those impact us, each of those in two different ways. So we've really looked at four different ways that stress has uh, helpful but also harmful effects on our body. And now we're gonna look at hopefully how we can kind of get rid of some of that stress. But one last thing before I move on, and I think this is so important to uh, to remind everyone that these responses that we've talked about so far, these happen without us uh, having an active participation in it. So if you're feeling stressed and you feel frustrated because you are feeling stressed, that just kind of adds to the problem. There is nothing wrong if you are feeling stressed right now. There's a lot of reasons to feel stressed. And our bodies are doing this naturally. That's how they keep us alive. It's just sometimes they keep going and going. So we have to learn to try to kind of deactivate some of those responses. So while we have our, you know, our bodies respond to stress, and this training is understanding the stress response, we have kind of this additional responsibility. How do you respond to how your body responds to stress? I hope that makes sense <laughs> because we can't control the stress response directly. We could control how we respond to that response. Probably the most confusing way I could put it, but that there you go. So how do you empty your glass? So think about that. Remember we have our glass and we have all of those stressors that we're pouring into it. And some of you, your, your glass is going to be right at the top full, and some of you may be halfway. We have to constantly try to empty our glass because it's not going to empty itself. It will just overflow, and we don't want anyone's glass overflowing. So here are some really quick ways to, to talk about that. Now, again, we're not going to go into a lot of detail. This isn't the uh, intent of, the, of this part of, of this training, but... First of all, just uh, if we can try to be conscious of when we're judging ourselves for feeling stress, you all have every right to be stressed right now. It's okay. Um, but let's first be conscious of that. And there's no need to judge yourself. Um, your body is just responding naturally to, to threats that we're experiencing. Um, we do have to address it. We can't just ignore stress. That glass isn't going to empty itself. It's going to spill all over, and it's going to be a mess. So we want to we want to make sure we could lower that. The very first thing that we can do, and I just can't uh, emphasize this enough, and and Jean did just such a beautiful job of doing this, um, and that's uh, uh, breathe. I know that sounds so simple, but that's the one thing we do have control over with our bodies. We may notice that our breath starts to get a little bit faster, but we could at least take a step back. We could do exactly what Jean taught us to do at the beginning of this training, to take a moment and take a deep breath in for four seconds, 
or eight seconds. And I'm so sorry, Gina, I don't remember if there's a different numbers there, but take a deep breath in for four seconds, hold it, and then let it out over eight seconds. Oh, there I go, I got the thumbs up. Whew, I need to brush up on some of those uh, breathing techniques. Um, but that makes, I think you all felt the impact in the moment. Um, you might have felt your heart decrease in its in its beating. You might have felt your your breathing just start to slow down a little bit. It doesn't mean you're going to be cured of stress, but it's one thing you could do in the moment, anywhere you're at, to help provide just a little bit of regulation in the moment. Um, I try to tell jokes. They're not always that funny. I try to use myself as someone you guys can laugh at. But the point is, I want you to laugh. Laughing can take the tension away, even if it's just for a second. Um, but being able to find humor in the day is so incredibly helpful. It's okay to laugh even when situations are difficult and, or painful. You don't need to feel guilt about that. Um, but being able to find balance and, and again, uh, just uh, recognizing that you're having some natural responses there. We just want to move more. I don't care if you run or walk or if you get up and do jumping jacks, but just moving your body a little bit more. Um, that can be a really great way to help empty our glasses. And then, you know, being intentional and deliberate, like obviously I, I should just write mindful as that's what I'm referring to, but we want to think about I'm doing this because I want to relieve my stress. I want to be intentional about what I'm doing. I think when I'm done with this training, I'm probably going to take my dog for maybe a 30 minute walk because this raises my blood pressure. And so I want to be intentional and deliberate. And I'm going to take her for a walk around the block, practicing my social distancing, of course. I don't know if I'll wear a mask or not. I haven't decided. I probably should. Um, and then finally, being creative. However you are creative, I'm not in the position to tell you what you should or shouldn't do with creativity. Um, but being creative can be a, a really great way to empty that glass, pour some of that stress out, do something with it. Because your family needs you, your clients need you your supervisors need you, your teams need you, and they don't want you, well, they'll still want you with your glass really full, but you'll probably perform much better if your glass is a little bit more, uh, a little bit more empty. So, um, and I'll, the last thing I'll share, I talk about myself a lot, probably too much, but this actually is the plant that's right next to my desk. You guys can't see it, that's a different plant, but seeing a new leaf comes out, for me, that's really exciting. And that's actually a little bit part of my own stress relief. That's how I empty my glass a little bit as I tend to my plants. And when I see that they're giving me life, for whatever reason, I think that takes just a little bit of the edge away. And so that leaf is getting bigger every day and I watch that thing grow. And so finally, uh, how full is your glass? You know, here we have an example. And in your handouts, <laughs> Thanks, Anna. In your handouts, you're going to see that there is a form. Um, I know we love, I love forms, right? You don't have to use the form, but it's this slide here where you could jot down the things that, that put stress in your glass. You know, I put the example of here are some ambient stressors like crime and homelessness and pollution. Um, work projects, COVID-19, all this stuff might be in my glass. And then here's what I'm doing to empty my glass. I'm not saying I'm doing all of these things. I need to work on this as well. Um, daily meditation. Um, thank you, Jean, for facilitating that for me because that's been so helpful. Um, walk 
including Pearl, who's my dog. Um, going to therapy can be a really helpful thing, and that can be done remotely. Um, binge watching Tiger King. Um, let's see, reading about climate change. I put this in there because I oftentimes learning new things and uh, doing research into some of the things that might bother you can actually be a way to reduce stress or it could stress you out a little bit more. Just be cognizant of it. Um, you don't want, it's kind of like watching the news. It's helpful to watch the news, but sometimes it can be a little overwhelming. So you know yourself the best. You're the expert of yourself. So you do what feels right for you. You find what nourishes you. And, and I take that quote from Lisa Davis. Thank you for that. I just love that quote. Um, so here are some things. And you have this template to use with yourself. You have this template to use with clients, um, with your children, with your family, with your partners, uh, whoever you like. So I think with that, I want to say thank you so much and please be healthy. And I forgot to mention this. Uh, there is a resource or reference list in the attachments. It's all hyperlinked. Um, and it has all the evidence that I based this presentation off of. And there's so much out there. Um, and there's also this really great handout that comes from Harvard Health. And I PDF'd it and I put made that available. Um, I, I just think it's they just did the best explanation of the stress response. A lot of this is really tough to comprehend and understand. And so that handout, I just think just, it does just such a wonderful job of doing it. So you can use that with your clients, you can use that with your family and friends, whatever. So um, anyways, thank you all so much. I really appreciate it.